0: Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Today is May 19, 2020. Our show is Of Her Kind, Radcliffe's messy experiment in women's liberation. All of our music for the show comes from jazz pianist Jutta Hipp. This is Lady Bird. Born in 1925 in Germany, Jutta Hipp studied painting and listened to jazz in secret as it was not approved by the Nazi authorities. After World War II, she became a touring pianist to support herself. She moved to New York in 1955 and played at the Hickory House in 1956, where she recorded two albums for Blue Note. A studio album with Zoot Sims followed in July of the same year and was her final recording. She dropped out of music, returned to painting, and worked as a seamstress for 35 years. In the United States of the 1950s, there was a struggle over the very idea of what it would mean to be an American. After World War II, an American could ride high on military power and new technologies. But the Cold War and nuclear anxiety undermined the very real economic prosperity being experienced by the growing numbers of the so-called middle class. Anxiety and supremacy yielded a national double consciousness. While the clarion called for progress, the bell tolled against difference. And along with fear of homosexuality and communism, those so-called lavender and red menaces, there was a fear that an educated woman might destroy the great American family. One such dangerous experiment in women's liberation was the Radcliffe Institute for Independent Study, a program that offered paid fellowships to women with a Ph.D., or the equivalent in artistic achievement. In her new book, The Equivalence, a story of art, female friendship, and liberation in the 1960s, published by Knopf. Maggie Doherty tells the story of how five women who received fellowships, poets Anne Sexton and Maxine Kuhman, painter Barbara Swan, sculptor Mariana Pineda, and writer Tilly Olson, formed deep bonds with one another that would inspire and sustain their most ambitious work. They called themselves The Equivalence. The fulcrum of the book is Anne Sexton, who shot to literary fame during her time at the Institute. Sexton believed she should be committed to home and hearth, husband and children, and yet everything about domesticity frustrated her ambitions. In her poem, Housewife, she writes, Some women marry houses.
1: It's another kind of skin. It has a heart, a mouth, a liver, and bowel movements. The walls are permanent in pink. See how she sits on her knees all day, faithfully washing herself down. Men enter by force. Drawn back like Jonah into their fleshy mothers. A woman is her mother. That's the main thing.
0: Sexton wanted to achieve a literary greatness in what was demonstrably a man's world. The Institute would give her what she needed to be a great poet, time and friendship, a room and community of her own. We'll start with the founder of the Radcliffe Institute for Independent Study, Mary Ingraham Bunting, a scientist, wife, and mother of four who perhaps assumed that her life was a useful model for women to replicate. But the equivalents, especially Sexton and Tilly Olson, radicalized the notion of what all kinds of women might want for a fulfilling life beyond the idealized family. And now, Of Her Kind, with Maggie Doherty, on Interchange, on WFHB.
2: So the founder was um, Mary Ingraham Bunting. She was known to her friends as Polly. And she was this really kind of um, fascinating woman who had trained as a microbiologist. Um, She went and got a PhD in um, the 1930s and 40s at a time when not very many women did. And she'd ended up having this kind of wonderfully balanced life as a scientist. Her husband was um, a doctor and was in residency at Yale. And she was allowed to access the Yale labs a couple times a week. So they had four children together and she had this great life where she, or what she felt was a really great and kind of ideal life, where she would commute into New Haven from their little homestead um, in Bethany, Connecticut and do her research and kind of keep up with all the current scholarship in her field and then the rest of the time she was with her kids, uh, she was farming, she was raising animals um, and she thought this was the kind of perfect balance for a woman, that they could do both and they could do both in a way that was kind of seamless. Her husband died very suddenly, and she um, sort of tripped into a higher education administration. There were a few friends of friends that set her up with a deanship at um, Douglas College, which was the Women's College of Rutgers. And she really thought carefully about what is the best way in 1950s America to educate women. More women were going to college than ever. But at the same time, they were really, really being encouraged by the culture at large to stay home and raise children. So you had this kind of strange life path where women were, I think the average age for women in the mid 1950s was they were getting married around 20. And either finishing their degree or dropping out of college, and then having kids and basically having their kids out of the house by the time they were in their mid 30s. And many of them had these, you know, kind of fancy liberal arts degrees, but they didn't really have a ton of professional experience. Um, They weren't really sure what to do with the education they had. And this became Bunting's major cause. She wanted to find a way for women to continue their studies and even go into careers after they've gotten married and had children. So she became, she became part of a circle of a lot of education reformers at the time. This was something that was being talked about a lot in the 1950s. And she ended up being appointed um, the new president of Radcliffe College in 1960. And this was her big chance. So she'd been waiting for a time to have the resources and the kind of platform to try something that was to her pretty radical. And that was to give 20 some odd women a two year fellowship and see what they would do if they got these resources. So the Institute was her way of doing this. She called it a a messy experiment. Let's just see what happens if we select the most sort of promising and talented and educated women Um, that we can find give them two years of a stipend an office access to university resources and let's see how many of them are able to do something really great Um, the institute was really targeted at women who had phds that's one of the reasons the friend group that i study had this joke that they were the equivalent of the doctorate holders um, because they had all sorts of artistic success she, she was sort of curious, you know, what happens if these highly, highly educated women have a couple of years away from their domestic responsibilities or have these resources that can help them out with their domestic responsibilities? Will they be able to either jumpstart a career or use the career that they already have ongoing to do something much better and more meaningful um, than they would have otherwise?
0: So there there's so much here that we have to kind of begin to think about in the first place, the idea of motherhood, the idea of the American family, on top of the fact that, your book points to some comparative statistics that you know are in that kind of Cold War era, where you know we compare ourselves to the Soviet Union and see that mm-hmm. their their statistics on on women in the professional classes, going to college, et cetera, are are, are so much higher than they are mm-hmm. in America, and it's such an interesting thing to think about. You know, America as a, as some sort of ideal that we have in our minds, you know, constantly not really measuring up in a lot of ways. So. Can you give us a little bit about just what what that means at that time? It's kind of hard to throw your mind back into that space.
2: It was a really particular um, time, I think, in American history. Well, I mean, I guess I should sort of answer that in two different ways. So the first is that, you know, one of the fascinating things about looking at history is seeing the sort of cycles and repetitions, um, you know, and so in the case of women's education and women's professional um, engagement or engagement in the labor force. This cycles throughout American history, especially in the 20th century. So you have sort of high points in the 20s where a lot of women are going to college um, and sort of exploring careers. And then that dips in the 30s with the Depression. And then in the 40s, women sort of go back to college and they also enter the labor force in much higher numbers because of the war. And that dips again in the 50s. And then in the 60s with the women's liberation movement. um and other and also the sort of reinvestment in higher education under the Johnson administration. Women go back to college, they go back to labor force. So there is this kind of up and down that you see um, looking at at sort of gender roles and labor in the in the 20th century. But the 50s are a really to me at least a really interesting moment precisely because of what you were alluding to, which is the way family became this really important Um, and sort of organizing symbol in American life um, in a way that was um, kind of omnipresent, like everyone... Of all in all sorts of um, demographics, all parts of society, was feeling this pressure to achieve a particular kind of ide- family ideal, a kind of domestic ideal with a single breadwinner and children um, and a really sort of beautiful and well-kept household. That was a very kind of prevalent concept at the time and it was also weaponized. Um, this is what you were talking about with the with the Soviets. There was this um, kind of cultural aspect to the Cold War where um, America was supposed to be better off, in part because, um, unlike the unlike Soviet life, where everyone worked. And everyone had sort of equal resources, and everything was kind of run by the state. The American sort of self-styled vision was actually we're such a, a wealthy society, things are so good that not everyone needs to work. And also, women are allowed to be feminine and kind of fulfill their feminine, um, you know, roles in our society. And there's that famous debate between um, the the kitchen debate in 1959, where the question is, you know, which society's women have it better: American women or Soviet women? American Women don't have to do anything. They're they're so lucky, you know that there's there is this w- the the way that the family and especially women's roles in the family were kind of being used in service of this foreign policy. I think is I think is really fascinating, and lots of you know brilliant scholars have written about this. Um, so that that moment I think does hold. If you're if you're interested in questions about sort of ideals or uh, the idealization of certain gender roles or of motherhood or of certain conceptions of the family, I think. 1950s America is a really interesting site to look at those things, um, just because it was such a, a sort of shared concern in this particular um, Cold War context.
0: You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. We're discussing art, female friendship, and liberation in the 1960s with author Maggie Doherty, whose new book, published by Knopf, is The Equivalence. It centers on friendships and creative collaborations that took place at the reform-oriented Radcliffe Institute for Independent Study, with a special focus on Anne Sexton, Maxine Kumin, and Tilly Olson. We've done multiple shows on the Red Menace, uh, you know, communism, J. Edgar Hoover, and mm-hmm. and all these things are are happening in this in this period as well. And this falls in line with that in some sense, right? The the idea mm-hmm. that this. Educating women and getting them out of the house, or so they ignore their families, you know, it becomes a threat like mm-hmm. homosexuality or like co- communism, right? So it's conceived mm-hmm. of in the same terms.
2: Yeah, very much so. I mean, I think the, the sort of two, there are a few words that I associate with the 1950s. Um, and two of them, I think, that speak to that are containment, which was both a foreign policy, right? Like, we want to contain the spread of communism, but also had this weird um, domestic aspect to it, which is, like, the home is your bomb shelter. Like, this is the safe place. Like, we don't want, you know, travel and mingling and public life and sort of, you know, that that is not um, the sort of safe way for you to behave. Like, contain everything in the home. Keep all the sort of kind of messy... Um, less than admirable aspects of your life sort of private Um, and this leads to the other word I associate with the 1950s which is conformity there was a real emphasis on everyone kind of matching and not deviating or being deviant in any way from the American norm there's those, there's some song, I think, about this, talking about the sort of little boxes of houses that right, you, sure. you can yeah. see in certain American towns. Um, and so I think those, those cultural forces, I mean, they're hard to locate in any particular individuals or institutions. Although actually, if you start reading some things, like you will locate them, you will hear people giving commencement speeches at the Seven Sisters schools and saying, you know, the, it's so wonderful that you're all gonna make wonderful American babies, you know, like go forth and, you know, procreate Um, but this this message was just sort of coming from so many different parts of society and it looks like if you you know read journals and letters from women who came of age in the 1950s people really internalized these messages and it felt hard to square personal dissatisfaction or personal misgivings with the message of the culture at large which was you're incredibly lucky to live in the united states um, if you're meeting these sort of um, expectations, you should be really happy, and everyone else is really, really happy um, doing exactly what you're doing.
0: Right, right. Yeah, it's it's pretty fascinating. But it is it is also the story that we were telling ourselves, the story in the media, the story uh, the, uh, I suppose the government's telling us uh, at the time, uh, the story of the American dream, the story of the American family. Obviously, it's not a story that that uh, that many of the uh, citizens actually s- – fulfill or can can even reflect or relate uh to in in a lot of ways and one of the key aspects of the book uh, is also just how this type of thing uh is kind of uh to use the word you use contained to a particular type of woman at a uh, at a you know from a particular type of background generally
2: yeah very very much so i mean i think this was um a kind of high point for, in the 1950s, this was a kind of high point for the largely white um, American middle class family. It it was one of the few moments where the middle class um, could have a single breadwinner um, model and actually that could work. Um, I mean, one thing that I think is interesting or what surprised me as I was researching this is I kind of thought, as you as you said, that, oh, only people in that part of society would um, even try to do this, even try to have this kind of perfect domestic life where the dad goes to work and the mom, you know, bakes casseroles or whatever. And what was surprising is reading research done by historians that said even families who certainly could not live this way, um, working class families, um, racial minorities who were sort of marginalized in various ways, um, they also were aiming for it. They also kind of tried to make that happen. One interesting thing that happened is as the black middle class started to um, develop, black women felt that exact pressure and also felt very, very confused about how to uphold these domestic stamp standards because they were often um, upwardly mobile and were coming from families um, who were in the working class. And so they had no idea what it would mean to sort of keep a perfectly um, you know, a, a acceptable middle-class home. And so they also felt that pressure, even though the image or the ideal didn't necessarily match their life experience.
0: Right, right. The book does a great job of sort of bringing a lot of those issues to light in, in the midst of uh, being very specific and focused on particular individuals. Uh, we mentioned them already. Your book has mm-hmm. uh, five in particular that you that you sort of um, highlight throughout. Uh, Anne Sexton uh, and Maxine Kuhnman, both uh, poets, poets. Uh, uh, Tilly Olson, a, a prose writer, a fiction writer, but also a nonfiction writer, and at one time a labor organizer and communist, uh, I believe, in the 30s as well. Uh, I forget Mariana P- Marianne Pineda. Is that Pineda? Right? Yes. And Barbara Swan. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, so uh, Pineda was a sculptor, and uh, Swan a painter. So these are the artistic equivalents of uh, the scholars at the uh, institute.
2: These five women who were there during the first two years, and they only overlapped for one year because, you know, each fellowship was a two-year fellowship. So three of them came the first year and two came the second. um, They were a little bit different. They were a little bit out of step with the more um, sort of typical scholars who were there. And these were the people that Bunting had really imagined funding. Um, A lot of those scholars were already pretty well ensconced in academia. Um, many of them were actually married to Harvard faculty members in those early years. So I think what drew me to this friend group is the fact that it was a little bit out of step with the Institute's mission, um, and also that it was its own group formation within this broader community.
0: This is Anne Sexton reading Her Kind.
2: I have
1: gone out a possessed witch... Haunting the black air, braver at night. Dreaming evil, I have done my hitch over the plain houses, light by light. Lonely thing, twelve-fingered, out of mind. A woman like that is not a woman quite. I have been her kind. I have found the warm caves in the woods fill them with skillets, carvings, shelves, closets, silks, innumerable goods, fix the suppers for the worms and the elves, whining, rearranging the disaligned. A woman like that is misunderstood. I have been her kind. I have ridden in your cart, driver, waved my nude arms at villages going by, Learning the last bright roots survivor where your flames still bite my thigh and my ribs crack where your wheels wind. A woman like that is not ashamed to
0: die. I have been her kind. It's time for a break. This is Yuta Hip playing Don't Worry About Me. More with Maggie Doherty on Anne Sexton and her fellow equivalents when Interchange returns on WFHB. Welcome back to Interchange. Our show is of her kind, about the vital and fecund artistic collaborations and friendships among women artists during the 1960s at the Radcliffe Institute for Independent Study, a messy experiment, according to Institute founder and education reformer Mary Ingraham Bunting. In this segment, we'll turn to the work of Anne Sexton and the political influence of her art as her poetry challenged the strictures and measurements of mid-century scientism. And Sexton is is kind of your for you know, like your entry into this, and her her own personality, her own issues, her problems, her her attempts to be what I guess is a standard housewife, mm-hmm. a standard you know married woman f- fail frequently, or at least mm-hmm. fail in her her in her mind, and so she becomes kind of uh, the main character of the book that. Displays, uh, I guess, the attempt, as you say, to embody a lot of what's being asked of women in this time, or at least certain kinds of women, and you know, it reflects her her wish to do those things. At the same time, her strong desire to be so much, so much more, or something else, or something different than that as well to achieve, also.
2: Yeah, yeah no, I think I think that's really that's really well put. I, th- I I do think, in a way, she's the more. Um, typical story, right? That she is, as you say... Actually, really wrapped up or intrigued or drawn into this kind of 1950s myth or model for how women should be. Um, But as you say, like also really resistant to it. Um, And she does kind of embody exactly that conflict. And she embodied the conflict in a way that was quite intense. Um, And she sort of wrote about it in her poetry. She was pretty open about her mental health struggles and the way that, um, you know, when she was. Uh, suffering from postpartum depression and her husband was traveling for his job as a salesman, just how sort of difficult that was for her. Human um, also had um, a kind of typical experience of that, but she managed her conflicts differently. She was a more um, private person and didn't sort of speak as publicly about the kind of um, challenges that she faced or when she did speak about them, she, I think, had a different way of, you know, sometimes she would use humor to talk about how hard it is to find time for her to do her work or something. Whereas I think Sexton's kind of um, slightly more tragic air about her, um, definitely kind of drew my interest and probably drew, has, has historically drawn other people's interest, um, as, as researchers. But, um, the other sort of reason I think she kind of ends up being at the center of this story is that she was a wonderful letter writer. Um, There are some collections of her published letters, and she really, you know, thinking we were just talking about creating community, she really um, reached out to people pretty easily. Some might even have said at different moments, like, too easily, (laughs) you know. She didn't have very much trouble picking up the phone to call someone or writing someone a letter just because she really admired their work or because, you know, she really just wanted to be friends with them. She might read someone's poetry and think, oh my gosh, the poet sounds amazing. I, I have to know them. I have to get in touch with them. So I think she ended up drawing people into her circle, into her orbit, um, because she was so readily... I mean, extrovert isn't even quite the right word for her, but she was so ready to make a connection. I guess is the best way to put it. For that reason, you know, she does sort of feel like the person that people are sort of circling or orbiting around, and I think that is a function of her willingness to to make friends on a very on a very basic level. You know, she made friends with all five of these all four of these women kind of separately. She had a very separate and independent relationship with Tilly Olson that started via letter writing when Tilly was still living. in san francisco she had a really deep collaborative relationship with barbara swan that was kind of very much its own thing that no one else really understood um they had a really deep understanding of each other that even you know cumin, her best friend and Olson, when asked about it, said, you know they they just get each other in some way, and i'm you know I'm not part of that, but they really they really understand each other so yeah she 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 was a i think a you know at, at times she could be hard to handle or could sort of need a lot of attention, but what was so kind of um moving to me is how well so many of her friends spoke of her and always said you know she was incredibly kind and generous i think human put it once you know she gave as as well as she got she everything you know i gave to her she repaid she gave me back in various ways um and i think that's part of what explains her you know her central role in people's lives and and, you know and for that reason also in, in the book
0: Yeah, yeah. She's definitely a a force to be reckoned with, I suppose. Uh, Gravitational. Mm But she and Kuhn come before the institute right so they're, they're uh, they' they've meet and know each other before the institute itself and that's that's essential to this group as well or how this group makes use of their institute's space is that mm-hmm. there already is a kind of uh, strong bond happening prior to their 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 time in the institute
2: yes yeah, so they they met in um, 1957. Um, at, a, at a at an adult education class in Boston. Human had already begun writing poetry um, a few years prior and she had also, um, when she was a college undergraduate, she'd written a little bit of poetry, she'd written a little bit of fiction. She ended up not really pursuing those at the undergraduate level because she was discouraged by one of her writing instructors. Um, but you know, she had a kind of consistent relationship to that and also had been trying to continue her education in various ways ever since she graduated Radcliffe. Um, Sexton was pretty new to poetry when they met. She'd only started writing... Um, relatively recently, because she watched a public television program about the sonnet and thought, "Oh, that's Man, a, I, that's an interesting I, thing. Maybe I'll try." I love
0: a that sonnet. story. I love that story. I got to tell you, it's one of those things in, that you're just like, "That's ridiculous!" Right? <laughs> just the mm-hmm. idea that, and yes. especially I, I. Richards, you know, you know, obviously one of the yes. do, the dons of uh, the New Critical writing as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, the idea of uh, you know studying words at, sort of detached from their contexts, and so all this is happening and way that you know you're able to experience the world of like literature but but um and i'd say professional but more than that almost it's like priestly literature in a lot of ways right like she, she like dives into into this space um that's that's so contained uh that's so circumscribed already right that doesn't really admit of a particular kind of perspective or writing
2: well, but I, I mean, I think what's really interesting about Richards's approach to teaching poetry and to the whole sort of school that he found, you know, the new criticism or what sometimes when I when I teach it to undergrads, I, you know, I call it close reading um, and what's what's kind of great about it and why it's such a good teaching method is the student doesn't need to know anything other than what's right in front of them. They don't need to know anything about literary history. They don't need to know anything about the metaphysical poets. They don't need to know anything about Wordsworth. All they need to do is look at a sheet of paper. And so I think in a way that was really, really advantageous for Sexton as her first exposure to poetry or not her first. um, Officially, she'd also written a little bit of poetry as a teenager, um, although much less seriously than Kumin did. But she she always found um, education a little bit intimidating. She'd had some negative experiences with schools as a child and not as an adolescent. She hadn't completed college. And so I think for her, there was always a little bit of anxiety and insecurity around Um, sort of formal education and credentialing. And so the fact that this approach to literature didn't require any of that. It didn't require a BA to understand this program or even to understand this approach to poetry um, was really great. And so in a way she got to start writing without some of the anxiety that so many writers feel who have read a lot and, you know, maybe majored in English or something and who think, oh my gosh, I'm going to try to do something that James Joyce has done. I'm going to try to do something that, you know, David Foster Wallace has done or C.D. Wright or whatever, and and sort of have this standard in their head about this is what good literature is. She didn't have that. And so she got to um, experiment with literature and with poetry kind of very much on her own terms. <laughs>
0: You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. We're discussing art, female friendship, and liberation in the 1960s with author Maggie Doherty, whose new book, published by Knopf, is The Equivalence. It centers on friendships and creative collaborations that took place at the reform-oriented Radcliffe Institute for Independent Study with a special focus on Anne Sexton, Maxine Koeman, and Tilly Olson. I think one of the interesting things for me in terms of the new new criticism or that idea or the aspect that you, you know, you don't necessarily need to know biographical details of the poet or things of this nature. Uh, there is a way in which that particular moment, I think, was working hard to cut out, you know, a lot of lived realities uh, to cut out the the life behind poetry, in a lot of ways, to to create a way to look at something that is sort of anti-political, uh, even. You know, it's an act of mm-hmm. poetry on the paper. It's got nothing to do with life itself, in some ways, or it's only personal, or it's only you know, it's not it's not mm-hmm. so much about the, the social world around you. So it's it leaves out so much.
2: I mean, I think that was true of a lot of um, cultural and intellectual movements at the time. I mean, I think the the new for the New Criticism specifically, it was a way of making the study of literature seem scientific, which was very important at the moment because that would help um, your English department get funding. You would be able to get some tenure lines if you said, no, 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 what we're doing is really rigorous. It's a science. It's rational. It's not some sort of dilettante you know, cocktail party affective response. It's something that you can actually study and learn and be good at in a very kind of objective and scientific way.
0: You know, that's important in terms of this book as well. It actually ties in really nicely to I think, uh, Polly Bunting's perspective as well. You know, what she's mm-hmm. wanting to pr- produce out of the Institute.
2: Yeah. 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 I mean, this, this really was, you know, the time of, um, I think what's, it's the, it's the snow essay, the two cultures or something, the two universities. And I, I think especially as we were talking about the cold war a moment ago, there was this belief in scientific advancement and, you know, that part of what we're trying to achieve as a liberal society, as a, as the, you know, the United States is, um, excellence in engineering and um, scientific innovation. We're going to have the sort of best technology, everything from the best dishwashers to the best spaceships. Um, so this was, you know, science kind of really did have a heyday in the 1950s and 1960s. So to be scientific was sort of a way to be taken seriously, I think.
0: It seems to be the, the goal of everyone in some sense. It's now data that is our science, mm-hmm. I suppose. And we're right. stuck in, stuck in that particular mode now also so these it's refreshing to me to you know read a book about real people trying to be or being art you know being artists right uh, so so that's a nice and very nice thing right now um and so uh, as you've already talked about why you chose your five these are the equivalents they're artists um and you did note that these are not necessarily reflective of the institute itself or even what Polly might have wanted to see but the uh, the focus uh, I think throughout is also on as you say this kind of community of women who who come together and actually support each other uh who who aren't necessarily competing though they had to compete to get in i suppose but the tutelary divinity of the school is virginia wolf and her uh, a room of one's own but also a community of one's own
2: yeah, I think that's a really nice way to put it. I mean, I, I actually went back to that Wolf um, piece when I was writing the book and you know found the famous dictum about, you know, you know, a woman must have money in a room of one's own if she is to write. But then when I kept reading the essay, I was struck by how she also is kind of longing for in a less direct way community. She writes about, you know, a, sitting in a room with a friend of hers at the college where she's supposed to give a lecture and wishing that she and her friend could spend a little bit more time you know sitting together in the room they weren't I think they weren't allowed to have dinner in her room or something like that and so she thinks that's so that's so frustrating like I just want to sit in the room with my friend and eat our dinner there and be able to talk and then she says you know imagine if my friend had had a mother who had you know been able to support her intellectual career? And what if we were part of this kind of, um, you know, intergenerational intellectual community in the same way that all these men at this college are part of an intergenerational intellectual community of people kind of passing down, you know, positions and fathers teaching sons and everything. And so I guess I was really struck by this kind of um, imagining of community and of a women's community so even though that's not actually one of the things she calls for in the essay I think it's there and I think that's part of why this institute took the form it did. There was some recognition that there could be something exciting that would happen if you put all these women in a room together you know it's, it's, it's interesting right because you could imagine the institute just being something like the Whiting Prize or the MacArthur right I think with the MacArthur you just get the money <laughs> I mean I, I have not won the MacArthur so I'm not sure <laughs> I think you, you, you get a grant. And with that grant, you're allowed to pursue whatever your project is. And that was some that's something they could have done as well, right? Say like, we're announcing the prize, the bunting prize for talented women who need money to, you know, hire some help or rent an office or something. And so like, please apply. But there was some recognition that that's not actually sufficient, that you need to get everyone together, you need to get them into a room together and get them talking. Um, And that is and that is what happened.
0: Yeah, no, it's 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 a great part of the the book. Actually, I, I had a weird conversation or a, a brief blip on Facebook the other day about Melville and Hawthorne, and you know, people saying particular things about Melville in terms of uh, Ishmael's relationship with Queequeg and uh, mm-hmm. and Hawthorne and Melville. And I thought, you know, I thought to myself, you know, for Melville, whatever the case may have been, what Melville need, needed was a friend. And that's really a big part of this as well, right? That I think mm-hmm. for, for Sexton to be what she was, she needed Kuman. Yes. Um, I'm not sure that I, you can tell me. it's. A, there, I don't get a real sense that, that, it, that it's the, it goes the other direction necessarily in terms of her art, but it may. Mm-hmm. Sexton clearly uh, relied on the partnership between she and kuman and t- to make her art, it seemed like.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think I think it did go both ways. That's my that's my sense having read their read their letters and, you know, read a little bit of them on each other. Um, They both sort of wrote reflections on the friendship. And my my sense is that first that they had this awareness of each other's voice. I think that's a really wonderful thing. They really had that awareness. You know, they were they were asked a few times, how do you help each other with poems without taking over the poem and making it your own. And and they said, oh my gosh, we're we're just radically different poets. Like I could never, I could never imagine writing in her voice. I could never imagine writing in her voice. Like I have to, it's we're we're so different um, that we know each other really well, but we can't, you know, I could never sort of subsume what she's doing into my own work or vice versa. I think that was really fruitful for both of them. And you know i, I think it's, it's it is clear right that Cumin was able to offer a certain amount of care and stability and reassurance but my sense is that what Sexton offered to Cumin was actually a kind of necessary amount of, of chaos or of, you know, instability that sometimes you do need someone to come in and, you know, shake you up and say, actually look over here. You know? <laughs> You've been looking in that direction for the last 10 weeks, like come look in this direction or, you know, really are you, is that, is that exactly how you feel? Or is there something maybe under the surface there that you need to explore? So, so I do think it was a really kind of symbiotic, um, relationship that, both of them really kind of benefited from.
0: Here's Maxine Kuman reading Woodchucks from her 1972 volume, Our Ground Time Here, will be brief.
3: Gassing the woodchucks didn't turn out right. The knockout bomb from the feed and grain exchange was featured as merciful, quick at the bone, and the case we had against them was airtight, both exits shoehorned shut with pudding stone, but they had a sub-sub-basement out of range. Next morning they turned up again, no worse for the cyanide than we for our cigarettes and state-store scotch, all of us up to scratch. They brought down the marigolds as a matter of course, and then took over the vegetable patch, nipping the broccoli shoots beheading the carrots. The food from our mouths, I said, righteously thrilling to the feel of the twenty-two, the bullet's neat noses. I, a lapsed pacifist, fallen from grace, puffed with Darwinian pieties for killing, now drew a bead on the littlest woodchuck's face. He died down in the ever-bearing roses. Ten minutes later, I dropped the mother. She flip-flopped in the air and fell. Her needle-teeth still hooked In a leaf of early Swiss chard. Another baby next, oh, one, two, three, The murderer inside me rose up hard. The Hawkeye killer came on stage forthwith. There's one chuck left, old wily fellow, He keeps me cocked and ready day after day after day. All night I hunt his humped-up form, I dream my sight along the barrel, In my sleep If only they'd all consented To die unseen Gassed underground The quiet Nazi way
0: It's time for a break This is What's New Another from you to hip When we return The equivalent of feminism Stay with us on Interchange On WFHB To Interchange, our show is Of Her Kind, about a radical space of women's liberation in the early 1960s, sort of. The Radcliffe Institute for Independent Study offered paid fellowships to women with a Ph.D. or the equivalent in artistic achievement for two years, an honest room of one's own. In this segment, we spend some time with Tilly Olson, the writer, communist, labor organizer, and teacher who Maggie Doherty calls the conscience of her new book, The Equivalents. One thing I I do want you to draw out a little bit is the kind of uh, feminism that Sexton might have represented without having been feminist uh, mm-hmm. in, in particular how she wrote her poetry how she exposed her particular feminism through the poetry without without it being a, a particular sort of you know flag of feminism. Mm.
2: Yeah, I think that's one of the kind of ironies of this group and yes of Sexton in particular is that they were performing or engaging with some of the ideas and principles of women's liberation but you know five to ten years earlier so what they they were doing it sort of non-ideologically this was not you know the things they were writing or painting or sculpting were not designed to further a movement because that movement didn't exist yet Um, so they were not sort of doing it according to any script they were just trying to figure out what they themselves were experiencing as women um and I think they each had different relationships to um, feminism as a political idea, and especially to women's liberation when it started in the mid um, in the mid 1960s. And so, as you mentioned, Sexton was pretty resistant to some of what she understood as as feminism. She she said, you know, I hate being anthologized with all of these um, I hate men poets. Like I love men. Men are great. You know, men are men are wonderful. Um, but You know, one of the the sort of tricky things about making art, and I'm definitely even feeling this as someone who's putting writing into the world right now, is that when you put it into the world, people are able to take from it what they want and see in it things that you don't see you're not entirely in control of what you make once it's out there and i think that was especially true for sexton whose poetry because of the way it articulated certain anxieties or kind of less um oppressive you know conceptions of of womanhood and motherhood meant a lot to a younger generation of writers and poets you know i i had the you know exciting experience of reading some letters that younger poets wrote to her um, during my research and she meant so much to them. She was also wonderfully generous in responding to a lot of these younger writers, you know, um, not something that every, every established writer does. And so I think especially for younger women poets who were starting to, um, you know, engage with some of these ideas, um, in the 1960s, her poetry did feel like part of what feminism was trying to do Was supposed to be, Um, breaking certain taboos around what you're allowed to express or say, um, not just in poetry, but just sort of generally in, in, you know, in public or something. So it is it's an interesting tension in that in that respect, like, what do you as the author or artist get to say about your work? And what can you kind of control about its reception and the way it kind of moves through the world?
0: there are two things I know we're running long here and I I really do want to ask two things in particular Uh, but I I do want to say that I think my favorite chapters are two kind of in the middle uh, Mad for the Message and Genius of a Sort these are chapters 11 and 12 in the book Uh, they discuss Betty Friedan's Feminine Mystique and sort of Tilly Olsen's um, real uh, I guess um, foray into her self in a lot of ways foray into the understanding of women's voices in the past and things like that so you go from Friedan's message to Olson's message in those two chapters. And I think they're so well done together. Uh, so I, I don't know if you can discuss them together or Thank talk you. about, you know. Well, they really are. I mean, to me, they're this obvious. And again, they're in the center of the book. So they are central <laughs> to, the, to the book, uh, but they're, they're great mm-hmm. chapters. So um, if, no, if you don't mind, you. if you can just sketch them uh, and, and try to talk a little bit about the way for Dan's message did resonate with so many women, but it was such a narrow message to so many others.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, in some ways I sometimes think of Tilly Olsen as the, as the conscience of the book. Um, like she, she's the one that I think if I, you know, it, there's a kind she has a kind of moral um, imperative to a lot of what she's doing. I mean, you were just saying, you know, so many of us write. And this is and this was true for her for for Olson as well. right to figure out ourselves to figure out how we feel about something. but she she was just so passionate about injustice. That was kind of the defining feature of her since she was a teenager in Nebraska, and she spent all of her life working to combat it in various ways. Whether it was as an organizer, whether it was on the PTA, you know, and when her children were in school, as a writer, as a as a critic, and a teacher. I mean, I, I, she she I can I can still. Barely imagine someone teaching she taught a course on the literature of poverty when she was at Amherst and you know how many how many courses like that exist now I don't think that many um so she just had this this idea that a just world would allow everyone to express the kind of essential creativity that she believed each person possessed like she really believed that everyone I mean there was a little. There was some internal tension to her, to her thinking in this way, because she also believed that she was, you know, very good as as a writer. And so she didn't, you know, I I think on the one hand, she sort of thought everyone was a potential artist. On the other hand, she thought that, you know, she was a kind of um, very, you know, good writer who deserved, you know, prizes and grants and things like that. Um, But she really saw success, artistic success, literary success, as so often a product of resources That it's just, you know, how much wealth do you have? How much access does that give you to institutions and resources? She also saw this in a gendered way, you know, how so many um, successful writers had wives to do all the kind of boring parts of daily life that do need to get done, whether that's caring for children or cooking a meal or whatever. Um, so she so she always was sort of thinking about these things. And when Fridan's book came out, which was basically an argument against the American home and against what we were talking about before, the kind of mythology of the American home. As incredibly sort of happy and desirable for all parties, Um, Fridan was a pretty polemical writer, and she called it a comfortable concentration camp. Um, She she was sort of her her book ends by saying, you know, the most important thing is for women to work, to work outside the home, and to do so in a kind of serious way. And this very much did, as you said, like resonate with um, certain members of the institute. It also kind of paralleled what the institute was trying to do in some ways. But for Olson, who had been working since she was eighteen, this was a really kind of puzzling message because you know she had been working outside the home. That wasn't you know that wasn't a problem for her, and for of course millions of Americans who didn't really have a choice about working because they needed to they needed to make money. They needed to you know support their families. So what she sort of thought about instead is, you know, not just saying oh my gosh work is work is great and women should do it and they need to stop sort of you know cleaning the kitchen floor and go go get a job but thinking about sort of personal fulfillment and spiritual fulfillment and what kind of society would we need for people to have those things and you know as a as a leftist you know for her personal fulfillment should not be contingent on your labor value it shouldn't be that you only get to have a nice life or feel good about yourself or express yourself if you've worked you know, a certain kind of job that gave you a certain amount of money that a, that a just world would give everyone the chance to do those things um, so that was part of her critique of Friedan that she started exploring when she was at the institute and the main way she did this was really by looking back into literary history seeing who got to write what kinds of things they got to write what was required for them to write and kind of asking what it would mean um, to create a more equal literary world where more people had the opportunity to do what some of these kind of greats like Balzac have had the chance to do.
0: You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. We're discussing art, female friendship, and liberation in the 1960s with author Maggie Doherty, whose new book published by Knopf is The Equivalents. centers on friendships and creative collaborations that took place at the reform-oriented Radcliffe Institute for Independent Study, with a special focus on Anne Sexton, Maxine Koeman, and Tilly Olson. This is a past that sadly has been lost, even though it's so essential and necessary to us as well. The idea of teaching the literature of poverty, which there's plenty of. And then as you go forward in the book, you, you bring Alice Walker in and and there's a seminar on, on the black woman and the lost literature of black women or black people in general as well. These are the central issues in a lot of ways. So I think it was to Olson who said, there's nothing wrong with privilege or the only thing wrong with privilege is that not everybody has it. Yes.
2: yes, yes. She was teaching at Amherst, um, which at the time was a very, I mean, and, and in some ways remains like a, an institution for um, students with a lot of privilege. And so there was something really interesting about putting her in that environment. And I think Leo Marx who hired her was kind of curious, you know, how, how is this institution gonna respond to this firebrand, what's gonna happen? And by all accounts, she was a wonderful teacher. Students really, really loved her. And in part because she, she had a structural analysis. She didn't blame any, any Amherst student for coming from money. That wasn't the point. The point was not to get them. And I think in a way, this is where maybe she differs from some of the current um, conversation around stuff like this. She wasn't asking any individual to, you know, feel a certain way about their privilege or sort of, you know, divest themselves of it. She wanted to work toward a world where systematically more people had those same advantages. That was kind of her vision.
0: And if you don't mind, really quickly, uh, it, it is a parallel between she and Alice Walker in terms of uh, uh, rescuing the past. In some sense, Olson mm. brings forward brings forward the work of Rebecca Harding, Harding Davis. I think it's a, a woman that she mm-hmm. unearths and begins her own uh, I, researches into the past. How how is it that some some women or some people continue to be read, or and some are lost, even if their value is great? You know, even if these works are great, they're lost. Uh, Alice Walker experiences the same thing. and and sort of finding out about Zora Neale Hurston as well. Um, So the Institute, interestingly, while it is clearly a bastion of, quote-unquote, privilege, um, Mm -hmm. did allow for some very important and particular things to sort of be rescued, to be redeemed, Mm -hmm. and, and to find their way back into the conversation.
2: It's it's always interesting as a, a when you're looking at something historically, and this is something I talk about with my students all the time. We come to these um, parts of the past with our present knowledge, and I think sometimes there's a temptation to criticize past actors for not thinking about the things. Thinking about things the way we think about them, um, and so in looking at those early years of the institute where there was a kind of narrowness to who they were serving, my aim is not to sort of scold them and say, "Oh my goodness, how could they not understand that you know working class women?" or "How could the how is it possible that the first class could be all white?" I mean, this was this, and I and I, and I think part of my my lack of interest in doing that is because the institute did change with the times. It really was open to becoming something different, um, such that by the 1970s, it was a more racially diverse community. Um, and this continued, you know, through the seventies and eighties, it was, it, it did try to sort of reflect and be open to the suggestions of its alums, of Radcliffe students. I do want to sort of give credit there to, to Bunting, uh, you know, founding vision, but also to the women who ran the Institute. Constance Smith was the first director, um, I've heard how wonderful she, she was as a director and the women who um, took over from her, who did make this into something that could kind of still be viable and relevant um, through the end of the 20th century.
0: Again, fantastic points throughout. I think one of the key issues, you, you brought it up also, interestingly, when Tilly Olson, you know, s- reflects that uh, great male writers were were relieved of certain domestic duties, or or living, you know, to having to live life by having wives. It's an interesting parallel to the the institutes giving women money to hire their own wives, in a sense, right? Mm-hmm. So all mm-hmm. all the stipend frequently went to hiring help, um, usually women of color, and it's a it's again, it's one of those ironies of history, right, that the oppressed. Uh, they don't. Tr- I, I don't want to call them become oppressors. These are, of course, you know, provocative terms that aren't necessarily uh, pertinent or correct in that sense. But you see the the weird sort of infrastructure of. Of how systems work in some ways. And we mm-hmm. talk about Olson having a structural response. She does respond to the fact that there are no women of color. Um, mm-hmm. She does. Mm-hmm. She does. Re- so she is the leftist conscience. And left is a terrible word, too. I think it's it's weird to me to say someone with a, a particular moral vision or a conscience is leftist. <laughs>
2: Right. So I mean, I think I that mean, is how she would have identified herself. Sure. Of course. Right? Of course.
0: So. I, but it yeah. No. No. Of course. I know. I know. And so it's it's my own sort of blindness to the fact that how does something so commonsensical to me mm. um, isn't commonsensical to other people? Right. So mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. I mean, I know that's a blindness in all of us. Right. But uh, uh, but it is. It was nice to to read that from Olson. But uh, there is that issue. Right. The idea that the stipend became. Um, a way to hire your domestic servant, um, so you could free up again mm-hmm. your your to to gain more privilege in some sense.
2: I mean, I think it's really tricky, you know. Um, I it, I think one thing that was so interesting and also at various moments dispiriting about the twenty twenty um, Democratic primary was the idea of how how can we deal with what you know? I think even I don't think it's too, too provocative to call. You know, we have a kind of child care almost crisis right now. (laughs) Like it is really, really expensive to get child care. So if you have two parents who are both working outside the home for most of the day, most of the week, there are kids need need to be cared for. And we do not have a good right now. We do not in this country have a good way of doing that, you know, because, you know, either you're paying way, way too much of your salary um for childcare or you're exploiting someone else for childcare you know or it's just we we don't have anything i think close to like a, a a functioning kind of way for for families with children to work in in this country so i don't think it's easy you know i think i think in a way what's striking about the challenges that the women in this book faced is that they're not so dissimilar for women today or for families today how do you have a career um have a career that you find compelling and invest yourself in it and also have a family and have children in that family feel cared for and attended to and how do you do this without you know either a going broke or b contributing to kind of ongoing structures and systems of injustice you know i don't like we don't don't have an answer to that right now so i think you know these are things that we're we still need to think about
0: our show. We'll close with one more performance by jazz pianist and seamstress Yuta Hip. This is The Squirrel. Thanks to Maggie Doherty for joining us to discuss her wonderful new book, The Equivalence, a story of art, female friendship, and liberation in the 1960s, published by Knopf. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Cade Young is executive producer. This is Bloomington, Indiana's community radio station, WFHB. Thanks for listening.